So our second scripture reading today, again, is the lectionary gospel reading for today, comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 18, beginning with the ninth verse. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating its breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, clearly by this point in Jesus' long trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, he was fed up with the Pharisees and others in in the religious establishment. This is right before he's about to enter Jerusalem. He's had one dispute after another with these religious leaders. And finally, as he's walking along, he can just sense their arrogance near him, their self-righteousness near him, and he has had enough. Maybe he's thinking back to his days as a kid where he knew that Pharisee in town in Nazareth who was always puffing himself up as better than everyone else. Well, whatever it was, Jesus does what he does best when he wants to make a point. He tells a story. And he tells a story, uh, and in the telling of it, he vocalizes what he imagines the Pharisees and others around him are already thinking. Story of the Pharisee, going, Pharisee and the publican or the tax collector going into the temple, and there's the Pharisee thanking God for how self-righteous he is, uh, thanking God he's not like all these other people, thieves, the rogues, the adulterers, and particularly that tax collector. Have you ever run into these people before? These people that rub you the wrong way as being a little overly self-righteous? <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, I was involved in Model United Nations. And every January, we went to a conference at the University of Pennsylvania. And when we went there, there was one school from Huntington Beach, California, that was always the most prepared of all the schools. Unlike the school I went to and most other places, they actually took a class devoted to Model UN. And so they spent an entire semester preparing for this, researching resolutions, researching country positions. And so when they got there, they'd show up dressed to the nines with their sort of tie pins, holding their ties there, and they'd walk in with these armful of binders with all their research just to intimidate everyone. And as they got up and gave their speeches in the conference, they had, it was, all their speeches were laced with one reference after another to previous UN resolutions. And when some country got up and, you know, timidly tried to give their position and it wasn't right, the Huntington Beach people were the first ones to get up and say, well, actually, a real person from Botswana wouldn't say that, uh, or some other equivalent. <laughs> And all the rest of us who were there, even though we acknowledged that they were very good, the rest of us there didn't really like these people from Huntington Beach High School. And so we would like gather there. It's one of the few times I was one of the cool kids. We'd gather there in the corner and be like, those Huntington Beach kids. (laughs) And we didn't like them because they were so darn arrogant and self-righteous. 
I'm sure you've run across people like that in your places of work. The person who always comes overprepared and wants to let everybody else know that he or she is overprepared. Um, always wants to go out of their way to show how much better they are than everyone else. And you sit there and it just rubs you the wrong way. Or, uh, you know, then there's the parents that do the same thing, for those who are parents. The parent who always, like, lets it slip how great a parent they are. Um, oh, we've done all the right things for our parents. Our, our, our kid is always so perfect and this, that, and the other thing. It's like, ugh. does get under your skin. And I have to say, if that was the only character, the Pharisee here in the parable was the only character that Jesus mentions, it would be a worthwhile sermon and a great message. Just as I said to the kids, don't be overly self-righteous. Nobody likes that guy. Even the kids sitting there, even when you're like, 10 years old, you can say, I don't like that guy. Good message of Jesus. But of course, there's a, there's a second character in his story. And this is where things get a little interesting. This second character is a tax collector. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have the IRS like we have today. So when princes, kings, rulers wanted to get taxes, tax revenue, they didn't have an elaborate bureaucracy in order to make it happen. That, of course, takes uh, a high level of logistics, communication, other things that were just too complicated for the way that ancient world was set up. So instead, when they wanted to collect taxes, the way they did it was they would designate one individual who was responsible for collecting taxes within a particular region. It's the system known as tax farming. And this individual would have to then pass along a certain amount of that revenue that he collected to the local ruler. But the individual could keep the rest. And in the ancient world, particularly ancient Palestine, uh, we're told by scholars that the tax burden uh, was relatively high on a lot of the particularly peasants who were in Palestine. And so you can imagine how hated this tax collector was. You knew that every bit the tax collector collected Um, a big portion of that was going to pat his own pocket. So there's the tax collector pulling up in his brand new Mercedes, you know, knocking on your door, and you're sitting there trying to hide everything away so you can seem like you have less money than you do because he's going to come after as much as he can, and he's got the power of the state behind him. So again, you think you don't like the IRS or paying your tax bill. Imagine if you had a tax collector in the ancient world, and your tax rate was like 75%. You really wouldn't like that guy at all. Again, you're paying 75% of taxes, and 25% you know we're going to pay for his stuff. Not a happy guy. It's even worse, though, because in ancient Palestine, those who were collecting the taxes were the Romans and those clients allied to the Romans. And, of course, the Jews at the time really, really, really did not like the Romans. They were about to launch this huge revolt against the Romans uh, not long after the time of Jesus. And so the Jews who were working as tax collectors not only were hated tax collectors, they were also collaborators with the Roman regime, and rule. So you can imagine how much distaste people had for the average tax collector in ancient Palestine. And so we have our tax collector here. But this tax collector has reservations, clearly, about being a tax collector. After all, this tax collector is going to the temple and saying, be merciful to me, a sinner, the tax collector is confessing that he has done something wrong by being a tax collector. Right? And so the immediate question that comes into your mind, well, why is he a tax collector? Why do it? 
If he knows it's, it's not right, if he knows it's wrong, if he knows he's this hated individual, why does he carry on being a tax collector? And if I were to take a guess, I'd say, well, he's a tax collector because maybe his father was a tax collector or his uncle, and he was able to get the position through nepotism. After all, it's a prized position. He, a position. He's got a chance to make a lot of money, provide for his family. It puts him to a certain strata of society. What a great thing, right? But again, there's a certain moral ambiguity to it. I bet he's going through his head. He's saying, well, if I'm not this tax collector, then someone else would do it, Right? How often do we find ourselves in situations, in potentially morally ambiguous situations, and yet we realize that the amount of freedom we have to choose something different is not as great as we would like? Could the tax collector just resign his position? Sure, he could. But then he'd put his family's well-being at risk. He'd put his status at risk. He'd undoubtedly sort of draw the ire of his father, his uncle, or whoever else he got the position from, maybe even the ruling person there. He's in this situation. He's bound by this situation. My father, when uh, he was going to college, or just before college, uh, really didn't want to be a pharmacist. My father and grandfather were pharmacists, and my father really did not want to be a pharmacist, but he was the only son... And so it fell to him to be a pharmacist because he had to buy out the pharmacies from my grandfather so my grandfather could retire. And so my dad, being the dutiful son, went to go be a pharmacist. He didn't want to do this, but that was the expectation that that he really had to do. Did he have a choice? Sure, but the choice would have had pretty major consequences. And there are lots of things in our life where we find ourselves in these positions. And again, a lot of these positions have a degree of moral ambiguity. How often do we wrestle with it? I'll give you an example, one that applies to all of us in this room. Uh, Let's take the example of something like climate change. The climate is that the planet is warming. That's a scientific fact. Uh, The planet is warming because of humans. That's at least a scientific consensus, uh, even though there are some who disagree. (laughs) Um, And so we see that the planet is warming. The planet is warming because of us. And this is going to have devastating consequences. We see this in, you know, currently all these wildfires in California. We see how many hundred-year floods we've had in Houston in the last few years. Uh, According to all the science, we don't know what the exact impact's going to be, but this is going to get worse and worse and worse in the future. And as it does, the impact will fall disproportionately on those who are poor uh, and marginalized. So this is a moral question, a moral issue. And yet... What do we do about it? What do you do about it? Do you decide not to fly planes anymore? That's actually the single biggest place that you're going to increase your carbon footprint. You decide not to fly planes anymore? Do you not use AC or heat anymore? Do you stop using electronic devices? Stop driving your car? Do you advocate strongly for new policies? How much are you actually doing to do anything about climate change? This has major moral implications. This is going to de- destroy our, 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 our planet. We all benefit from it, but what are we doing actually to fix it? Do you see what I mean? You're, you're in a situation similar to the tax collector. You, you may not like the situation you're in, but is it really a live option to just take yourself out of society and say, I'm not going to fly planes anymore? But you can't you see this, the moral problems that are there? 
And the situation goes deeper than that, actually. You know, I think about my high school and my college experience, where given where I grew up, given the expectations on me, I was someone who was taught to work all the time. And I put a huge burden of stress on my shoulders as I did this. I worked all the time and worked. This is what I was supposed to do. This is what one does in my situation growing up in a place like Wellesley, Massachusetts in my generation. You work your tail off and then you get the right, nice little sort of pats on the back the whole way through. But that comes with a consequence. And those consequences actually have moral implications. If you're stressed out all the time, you're not a particularly nice person. If you're stressed out all the time, you're not actually helping others in the way you necessarily should. If you're stressed out all the time, what are you prioritizing? You're prioritizing these different goals rather than potentially being a more godlike person, holy person. But that's the pressure that society puts on you, and you get in this little funnel, and you go there. There are moral implications to these decisions. All of you who are working could make a decision to work fewer hours. And if you work fewer hours, you'll probably be able to spend more time with your family, more time with your friends, but it comes at a cost. Societal standing, material things you can buy, many of which we don't need, but still we insist that we do. I mean, as we go through our life, we realize there are actually moral dimensions to a lot of decisions that we make, but we don't actually have as much freedom to change as we think. Now, we're all good people. You're all church people here, so I'm assuming you're a good person. Good people come to church. But can you see the sort of morally ambiguous situations that we are still in in spite of that? And we like to build up these walls of self-righteousness around us because it's much more comfortable to deal with that. It's much easier to say that climate change is a hoax than to actually deal with the moral implications of climate change. That's just a fact. It's much easier to put up self-righteous stuff and defend our various positions rather than actually having to deal with some of the moral implications of them because it's uncomfortable. We don't like being uncomfortable. But sometimes we get our self-righteousness knocked a bit. I remember back when I was working as a chaplain at Harvard, this one student, Charlie Young, had a graduation party. And I remember uh, he invited me very kindly to his graduation party. I went there, and I was sitting at this table with some of these other people graduating from Harvard in 2009. And one of them was this woman named Emily, and she spoke up. She was a very, I will say, a very privileged woman, <laughs> Emily. And she spoke up, and she said, isn't it wonderful that we live in a post-racial society? And her piece of evidence that she indicated for this was that her friends were willing to date someone and do date people of different races. And so therefore, this shows that we're living in a post-racial society. Racial stuff doesn't matter anymore, she's saying. And she's celebrating this. Isn't this great? But she was celebrating it with a clear air of self-righteousness, of aren't we better than these other people? Well, also at the table was another student I knew, Dan. Um, very bright, very precocious. And Dan sort of paused. And he said, yes, Emily, but would you date someone who went to community college? <laughs> and you could hear a pin drop around the table <laughs> as he called her out for saying, hey, listen, you may claim you don't have these other biases, but you have other ones. Don't claim that you're in this bias-free situation where you're the one who's self-righteous, because I got news for you. You're not. And the thing about being able to step into that place of acknowledging some of the moral ambiguity in which we live and some of the sinful situations in which we live, that hopefully we can then see ourselves in a more realistic and honest lens. We realize that we're not that good. At least we're not as good as we think we are. 
We realize that we do make moral choices all the time that are focused on ourselves, structured by society. It's an interesting place to find ourselves to sit. One of my favorite books of philosophy is Albert Camus' The Fall. I love this book for a lot of reasons. The main character in The Fall, for those of you who have not read it, is a lawyer who was uh, a lawyer in Paris, very successful. He spent the right amount of time in pro bono work, uh, represented all the right clients, uh, knew how to, be, to say just the right comments at cocktail parties. Uh, I mean, he was the ultimate, polished, perfect you know, example of what you should be as a lawyer. And one day, and he knew he was good. He knew he, was, he knew he did everything just right. And then one day he was walking along the Seine, and he heard someone fall in the water. Someone was trying to kill themselves falling in the water. And the lawyer just walked on. Didn't go in to save him. Just kept walking along the sand and pretended he didn't hear it. Well, this situation began to haunt him and revealed to him, the more he thought about it and dwelt on it, how he wasn't nearly as good as he thought he was. And that a lot of his actions that he was doing, he was doing because that's what society expected him to do and it made him feel better because that meant he got all the approbation of those around him. Oh, when he represented the right number of pro bono clients, all, the, all of his other privileged friends were like, oh, you're such a good person. He's like, yes, I know, I am such a great person. Um, and he started to realize that a lot of the things that he did that he saw as being altruistic were actually very self-serving. And so this Camus lawyer decided to leave Paris, gives up his stuff in Paris, moves to Amsterdam, and hangs out at a bar called Mexico City where he sits around and judges the rest of the world, but also says, hey, I'm just as blameworthy. He, he, he calls himself a judge penitent. So he judges everybody else, but he's like, I'm just as bad. But I still get to judge you. Uh. <laughs> so here you have this character who sees the ambiguities, the moral ambiguities, the moral pitfalls of life, sees his self-righteousness sort of punctured. And in the Camus story, he ends up going to this bar to drink himself into a stupor every day. The tax collector who's in a pretty similar situation, goes to the temple instead. Because there's one difference between uh, the lawyer in Camus' story and the tax collector. Camus' lawyer didn't believe in God. The tax collector did. And more importantly, the tax collector knew that God loved him and he could find grace and forgiveness when he actually brought his full self before God. One of my favorite spiritual writers is Anne Lamott. I know, I'm sure a lot of you have read Anne Lamott's writing. One of the things that's so great about Anne Lamott's spiritual memoirs, her first one was called Traveling Mercies. One of the things that's so great about Anne Lamott is just how honest she is in her writing. Anne Lamott just is, she lays it out there. She's like, this is where I was angry. This is where I was selfish. This is where I messed up. She talks about her addiction issues very openly. She talks about her struggling with parenting, with grieving, with all these different aspects of life. She doesn't try and sugarcoat everything. She tells life as it is. She's brutally honest in her memoir, and it's incredibly moving to see because she can name all of the various faults and things that other people might not want to lay out there because she realizes that she's still loved by God and she lives a graced life. At the core of Anne Lamott's spiritual memoir is the fact that she says even though she's a flawed, broken person, she realizes that she's still redeemed and loved. And so she's able to step into that place of brokenness and live there and feel comfortable there because of her faith in God. 
And it allows her to see the gracious moments in the world around her as she describes them in her memoirs. So that even as, the, even as she looks around at the broken world, she can still see the beauty of God shining through because she feels that in her own life. At the end of the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, both of them head home. And I can imagine the Pharisee walking along the road, and when he sees one person, judges that person. Oh, that person's, I know that person's an adulterer. That person's awful. Oh, that person, that person's a prostitute. That person's awful. Oh, that person, that's a thief. That person's awful. And keeps his nose in the air as he walks home. But I imagine the tax collector, when he walks home, when he walks home, might see that same person who's an adulterer and say, that person's in a horrible marriage. I wish that person could get out of it. Or that person might be going through a lot of stuff right now in spite of what they're doing, even in spite of the fact of what they're doing is wrong. Or they might look at the thief and say, oh gosh, yes, that person's stealing, which is not right, but here's someone who's also stuck in poverty and needs to provide for his family. Is there some way forward on this? Maybe looking at the prostitute and saying, there's someone who just needs to be loved needs have a society that's kinder and more grace. I envision this tax collector, when the tax collector is walking home, looking at the world around him and seeing those reflections of God's love and the brokenness that's there. And there's a certain beauty in that. One of those paths, the path of the Pharisees, is a path that many in society take. But the other path, the path of the tax collector, is a Christian path. It's a path of being honestly broken. Being able to be honest with our brokenness and our failings to receive the grace of God and, and in so doing, still be able to see the beauty and love around you.